We have the privilege of looking at a wonderful passage together today. We pick up where we left off from last week. We finished John 17. Today we're going to look at the first 11 verses of John 18. So please look on with me there. As we've been in the upper room for several months, or at least that discourse, and now we're going to be looking at how Jesus is betrayed and arrested. So please follow along with me, beginning in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kindred, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judah, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have not lost one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Our Father, as we look at this passage today, There's a real opportunity to look to Jesus and to once again be caught up by how magnificent he is. And so remove the scales from our eyes. May we see him for who he is. And may our hearts be drawn to him that we would turn from sins and go all in in pursuit of him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're like me, then you've probably had opportunities to go and visit places. It could be the city. It could be at a national park, a state park. It could be in a prairie where you look at one of these coin-operated binoculars. And this allows you to zero in on some bison or some elk or a canyon or a mountain range or some high, towering buildings within the city. As you look, you can see more clearly. As we look at this passage today, I think that we have, in the first 11 verses of John 18, our own little binoculars to be able to gaze at how magnificent Jesus is. So I think we just have a very simple message today, and we're going to take a look at five different ways that we see that Jesus is magnificent. The first here is that Jesus is the conqueror. As we look at these first three verses again, 
look, for, look with me for some words or some themes that you can find elsewhere in the Scriptures. Look what it says here in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Have you ever heard of a garden in the Bible? Verse 2. Now Judas, who betrayed him, according to Luke verse 22, verse 3, Satan entered into Judas, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some other officers from chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Hmm. You have here a garden. We've read about a garden before. You have here a sinless man. We've read about that before. And you have here a representative of the devil. And we've read about that before, too. Here you have, in the first couple of verses of John 18, a sinless man in the garden that is about to do battle with the representative of the devil. This takes us back to the opening chapters of the Bible in Genesis, where there is Adam before he had sinned, and there he was in the garden, and there was the serpent, the representative of the devil, and there was a battle that would take place. According to Romans 5, For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Kent Hughes in his book said the first Adam began life in a garden. Christ, the second Adam, came at the end of his life to a garden. In Eden, Adam sinned. In Gethsemane, the Savior overcame sin. In Eden, Adam fell. In Gethsemane, Jesus conquered. In Eden, Adam him himself. In Gethsemane, our Lord boldly presented himself. What a wonderful book we have with one overarching storyline. The Bible begins in the garden, and all the trouble starts there in the garden. Now as we get to the end of Jesus' life, we're back in a garden. A sinless man that is about to be confronted by a representative of the devil. Peter would write, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed. This Jesus, whom we serve, is the conqueror of sin. He is the one that makes everything right that Adam and we have made wrong. And when you look at the curses that we see there in Genesis 3 of the struggle that a husband and a wife will have, we can be encouraged as we look here at John chapter 18 because he has come to declare his power over that sin 
and over that curse. And the sweat that is upon a man or a woman's brow by work of this curse of this first sin by the first Adam. Well, it will be redeemed that we can work for God's glory because of the second Adam, Jesus himself. We see here that Jesus is the conqueror. The second thing we see in this passage, not only is Jesus the conqueror, but Jesus is lowly. As these soldiers come out to Jesus, along with Judas, he asks them in verse 4, Whom do you seek? In verse 5, they answered him. They said to Jesus, We're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. Now, there are all sorts of names given to Jesus in the Gospels. He's called the Messiah in John 1.41. He's called the Savior in Luke 2, verse 11. The Son of David in Matthew 1.1. The True Light in John 1.9. The Lamb of God in John 1.29. God's beloved Son in Matthew 12.18. But they don't use any of those titles. They use a title that they intended to be derogatory towards him. Jesus of Nazareth. Now the word Nazareth, or that little village of Nazareth, was not seen favorably by the people in the first century. The people there talked funny. They had a thick dialect. They were uncultured. They were backcountry hicks. And it was potential that they had low morals. So whom are you looking for? They say, Jesus of Nazareth. Now, what was probably intended to be an insult to Jesus, he wore as a badge of honor. That's right. I identify with those people. A couple of weeks ago, coming back from our mission trip, I was listening to this old book called The Cross and the Switchblade. Many of you have probably heard that, maybe seen the old movie or read the book from David Wilkerson, this, this man of God that had a heart to go to the inner city of New York, to the Bronx, where he had heard about these teenagers that viewed life so low that he wanted to bring the good news of Jesus to them. And so he went. And one of the things that he discovered among the the kids there on the streets is that there was a reason why these teenagers were on the streets, because life was actually more stable and better on the streets than it was in their homes. And they had a very difficult time understanding that this Jesus would love them, that he would come and identify with them, that he would come to bring them life. That's right. Jesus is not only Jesus of Nazareth, but he's the Jesus of the Bronx. And if you're like me and Probably there's many here. There's, there's something within me, at least, that says, why would you love me? Why, why would you associate with me? Perhaps you can identify with growing in a less than desirable place, a project, a, a trailer park. Maybe your name or, or your family is not something that you're necessarily proud of or potentially ashamed of. But what we see here is Jesus is not only the conqueror, but he is lowly and that he comes and identifies with you 
in whatever situation you find yourself. He surrounded himself with tax collectors, lepers, prostitutes, and sinners. And loved ones, he comes to you and me today, even if we don't feel worthy. So Jesus was not only the conqueror, Jesus is also lowly, but we'll see also that he is powerful. Look at what it says there again, that Jesus Rather, verse 3, Judas, having procured a band of soldiers. The Greek word here for band of soldiers is, is not very clear. In my study, it's at least a couple of hundred soldiers. It could have been as many as a thousand of these soldiers. Think about that. All coming to arrest one man. And it says there, in verse 3, that they went with lanterns and torches and weapons. Why would they need torches? And why would they need lanterns? Well, clearly it was in the evening. But it could be that they were anticipating this one that they were pursuing that would try to flee them to the caves or maybe up in a tree of some sort. And they would need the light to be able to capture him. But look what it says in verse 4. Then Jesus knowing all that would happen to him, came forward. Is like stepping into this. And he asked this question, Whom do you seek? In verse 4. In verse 5, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them in verse 5, I am. Now our English translators include the word he. But in the Greek, that is not there. His response is, I am. Now, if you've read carefully through the Gospel of John, you know this isn't the only time he's used those two words, I am. He said, I am the bread of life. I am the light. I am the door. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the resurrection. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I am the true vine. And as we've worked through this in the Gospel of John, we have saw that when he used these two words, I am, he was doing it intentionally, hearkening back to Exodus 3, verse 14, where God the Father identified himself as, I am who I am. He is the self-existent one. He is own self-sufficient. He is and he always will be. And did you notice the response when he offered those two words, I am? Verse 6, when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. It's as if in this tense moment, the father is introducing some humor. Imagine this, these hundreds of soldiers with all their weapons and these torches and lanterns looking to arrest this backwoods hick from Nazareth. What they think will will just be a task where they'll go and scoop him up and, and using merely two words, he knocks them down to the floor. In this moment, Jesus identifies himself as God. 
Then verse 7 says, so we asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And then he says to them, I tell you that I am he. What we see here in these verses is despite Jesus being arrested, he is in absolute control. Jesus said in John 10, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. He is not only the conqueror, he is lowly, and he is powerful. We see this consistent pattern in Jesus' life, and if we are followers of Christ, hopefully we see it in our own, it's this. Jesus consistently humbles himself, and the Father consistently exalts him. Think of it this way. This is from McLaren, another Bible teacher. He said, Jesus was born as a humble baby, yet announced by angels. Jesus was laid in a manger, yet that was signaled by a star. Jesus submitted to baptism as if he were a sinner, then heard the divine voice of approval. Jesus slept when he was exhausted, but awoke to calm the storm. Jesus wept at a grave, then called the dead to life. Jesus surrendered to arrest, then declared, I am, and knocked all the troops down. Jesus died on a cross, but in it he defeated sin, death, and Satan. Jesus is the perfect combination of the lowly and the powerful. Here's a fourth thing we see in this passage, and that is that Jesus is the protector. So two different times he poses this question, whom do you seek? And just understand that he had a reason for that. He wanted clarity from these soldiers. Who is it that you are seeking after? And in both cases, they say we're really after one person, Jesus of Nazareth. It's astonishing to think That is, he is about ready to be arrested. Where is Jesus' mind and heart right now? Not on himself, but on the 11 remaining disciples. Look what it says there in verse 8. I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. Verse 9, this was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have not lost one. Jesus is concerned about his 11 men. He's concerned that they too could be swept up and arrested and worse killed. And his mission lies on their shoulders. So he is the protector. You might remember when we covered John 17 that that's what he prayed. He said in verse 12, While I was with them, those 11 disciples, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them. And not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction. The scripture might be fulfilled. We see in this passage that Jesus cares for his own. But there is also a word of warning here, isn't there? Because there is, a, there is one that at one time identified himself as a disciple that is also present. His name is Judas, and he is the betrayer. Think about this. 
Judas identified himself as a follower of Jesus. Judas attended the Bible studies. Judas went on mission trips. Judas preached the good news. It's very possible that even was used to perform miracles. But he never knew Christ. So it's a word of warning to us to say, are we really in the faith? Are we really exhibiting spiritual fruit or is that just exterior activity? We too are capable of such hypocrisy. Finally, as we look to Jesus and we are standing this morning in awe of him, we see that Jesus is the sacrifice. In verse 10 it says that Simon Peter... Having a sword, and our friends here that are advocates for conceal and carry will say that, well, Peter must have had a permit to conceal and carry because he had a sword with him. Having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. Peter, failing to see God's plan, takes actions in his own flesh. And he strikes a soldier. Now, according to Luke 22, verse 51, Jesus responds, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed them. It's interesting that John includes the man's name, Malchus. We can only speculate as to why. But it could be that as John has laid down an account of Jesus' life, that what he is doing is he is providing a name so that people could come back later and say, check with Malchus, check with his family to find out if this truly did take place. And then we see in verse 11, Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? What is this cup? Is it a physical cup? Well, if you have read this account in the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you would know that there is a gap between verse 1 and verse 2 of John 18 where Jesus goes and prays there in the Garden of Gethsemane. You remember reading about these sweat drops of blood that comes from him? One pastor, Chuck Swindell, says that he prayed for three hours there at the Garden. And what does he pray? According to Matthew 26, verse 39, it says, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nonetheless, not as I will, but as you will. This is not a physical Dixie cup or a a shot glass of some sort. Rather, it is a metaphor that speaks of Jesus' cross and the judgment that he will absorb on our behalf. Let me read to you a passage here. It's there in your outline. It's 1 John 4, verses 9, 10, and 11. That speaks about the love of God. It says, In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. In this is love, 
not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And this passage contains that million-dollar word, right? The word propitiation. What in the world does that word mean? Well, it just means a sacrifice that turns away God's wrath. Let me just see if I can illustrate it. Those of us in our church that have had the privilege of going to Senegal, Africa on a mission trip, know that on Neamun Island, what they often will do is offer sacrifices to what they call spirits. So if a person is sick, they might say, the spirits are angry with me, must offer a chicken. Or if they want to have a good harvest, they might say, well, we're going to offer this goat in order to satisfy the spirits. In a way, that is like a propitiation, a payment. Is that what we have here in John chapter 18, that Jesus is going to take the cup and and that's the payment? Not exactly. Because that would suggest that God is angry with us over our sin, of which he would be, but that we have to somehow come up with a sacrifice that will satisfy his holiness. And here's the problem with that. There is nothing that we could offer that would satisfy his righteousness. You see, the propitiation in the gospel is that God himself offers a sacrifice to satisfy his righteousness. And who is that sacrifice? The one person that is most precious to him. His only son. The sinless man. So what does it look like for Jesus to take this cup? It is to be that willing sacrifice that would satisfy the righteousness of his father and allow us to have a relationship with him. With him. Maybe a little bit more clarification. We might be thinking that, that God is so angry at us and Jesus is trying to convince him. I tell you what, Father, yes, they're, they're, they're sinners and they're bad people, but if you get to know them, you'll find out that they're, they're, all, they're really not all that bad. So how about I go to the cross so that you can have a relationship with him? But that's not what we see in the scriptures as well. What we see is that God, hmm, that God loved you before the world began. He knew all the mess ups and all the sin that you would commit. And his plan was to go back to the garden and send Jesus to be the sacrifice so that he and you could enter into a loving relationship with one another. That is what the cup means. Isn't this Jesus that we see here in the scriptures so magnificent? He has conquered sin. He is lowly. He is all-powerful. He is the great protector. And he is the once and for all sacrifice. 
So how should we respond? First is to receive this love. Jesus has come to identify with you and your sin. He drank the cup of God's wrath and judgment so that you would not have to. God provided the sacrifice because you couldn't. Listen to what Paul wrote. God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Receive. Open the door of your life. Allow him in. Allow him to be the ruler of your life. If you've never received his love, this is what we are urged to do as we look over these 11 verses of John 18. Not only are we to receive it, but we are to remain in his love. It could be that you are hearing this morning and you say, yeah, I did that. I did that once. You receive God's love. But that is not enough. (laughs) Yes, that might lead to being right with God and a relationship with him. But God has called us to so much more than this. God continues to extend his love to you today. Believe. Continue to receive it. Let his love wash over you. Be encouraged, renewed, and restored. Jesus in John 15 says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide or remain in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will remain or abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandment and abide or remain in his love. So we reflect on this passage this morning. It really is a passage that demonstrates God's love for his church, for God's love for the world. As we walk through who this Jesus is, we see that Jesus extends love to us, and so does the Father. So here's what I'd like us to do. As we reflect on all that is taking place in our country, and I know there's other storylines that are taking place, but we are also seeing that the Lord is working among his people, a lot of them young people, as they are reflecting on who Jesus is and the love that God has for them. What I'd like us to do is just to take our as much time as we need is to reflect on God's love. Love that was demonstrated in sending Jesus as the payment for us, but it's a love that continues to flow from him as we see here in the pages of Scripture. And as you reflect and meditate on God's love, maybe looking over these verses that we've covered this morning, why don't you also just pray for your own personal revival? You can't be revived unless you've been vibed, right? You you can't be um, experiencing this renewal in life unless you are a Christian. So if you are a Christian, why don't you review, is there... Is there sin in my life that needs to be confessed? 
I'm just telling you, as I'm hearing all these news reports, I'm watching these interviews or reading articles, I can't help but think, Lord, what sin is in my life that I can get right and confess? And what, what evidence of pride is there? And in the last couple of days, he has shown that to me. And I just say, let's, let's do this together. You do the same. Let us allow the Lord to clean our hearts and our hearts and our lives. So here's what we're going to do. We're just going to close our service and just going to allow you to pray. Reflect on God's love. Pray for personal revival. If you've never trusted Christ, right where you're at, receive God's love that you might be saved. And if that leads you to pray for a minute or two and and you feel like, I'm good, you can get up and you can leave. If that means that you need to just linger and pray more and more, you have the freedom to do that. If you, have, if you sense it's time for me to go, you can do that, but I would just ask for you not to be so noisy and distracting as you walk out, and let's keep these doors closed uh, for as you go out, allow them to close behind you so there's not a lot of distraction out in the hallway. But why don't we just take some time today and just pray personally for our own little revival. And then we'll just trust the Lord will work in others as well. Gene, I wonder if you could play, just have a little bit of a, a background. Allow me just to commit this time by prayer myself. Thank you for giving us this opportunity just to hear these words. And I'm just reminded of this love that we see in this passage. And help us to receive it. Not only to enter into a relationship with you, but help us to remain in this love as we see there in John 15, to remain in your commandments. And if there is evidence that we have not kept your commandments, help us to confess that. Help us to seek reconciliation with others. And may we experience, may we experience our own renewal and revival here one person at a time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.